good. God, as we turn to the Bible just now, I pray, God, that you'd speak to us. I pray you'd feed us from truth. I pray that our souls would be nourished. I pray we'd leave here stronger and fitter in God with a clearer understanding, a clearer vision. God, you know every person here, and I know, God, you love every person here. God, I pray that you would come by your Spirit. I believe you're already here, but you'd come with great power and touch every life. I pray for those who are sick today, God. I pray that they would experience your miracle in their bodies. Pray for those who are downcast, that God, you would raise them up by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray for those who are far away from you, God, whether it be they've once been close to you, or whether it be they've never been close to you, I pray today that they would be drawn close to you by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Well, we've kicked off a new series as of last Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably going to take us about 12 months to work our way through verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. As I said last week, this is the world's most famous sermon ever preached by the most famous person ever, Jesus Christ. It, you find it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 to chapter 7. It's, a, it's, it's three chapters, and we're going to work our way through every single verse. We want to allow it to challenge us and kind of shape us as people. And remember when Jesus in Matthew 28 said, go and make disciples of all nations, and he went on to say, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you? Well, this is what we're doing. We're, I, I, my heart is just, I want to teach you and teach me as well to kind of put into practice the stuff that Jesus taught us. I want us to be close to him, honoring him with our lives, growing in him. So that's the journey we're going over, over the next year. And uh, if you missed last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go online uh, and you can download, as, as, as with every other week's message, you can download last week's message. Uh, and that really acts as an introduction to the next 12 months of teaching. So please get hold of that and um, really listen into the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we did last week. Okay, uh, today we're going to be looking at the whole subject of mourning. Good morning. Okay, there was, a, there was a man one day and he was walking through the graveyard and there beside one of the graves was another man utterly distraught, weeping and mourning and wailing, utterly distraught beside himself. And the man said to himself, what on earth is going on with this guy? So he said, and, and he could hear him, he, he was wailing and wailing and wailing and he kept saying, why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? And he said to the man, listen, I know this is a precious moment for you and I don't really want to interrupt, but I've never seen such depth of mourning before. Who are you crying for? Is it it a loved one or a son or daughter or someone you were close to? And the man kind of composes himself and said, it was my wife's first husband. Why did he have to die? Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The fact is, God comforts mourners. This has been a tough week for um, maybe more people than I know in this church, but I know of two particular dear brothers in this church who one has lost a father one has lost a mother this week. That's heartbreaking. I know what that's like. That is horrendous. So some of you, maybe others that I don't know of here, you're in mourning. And the good news is, 
God comforts mourners. He does. Jesus, when he went to the tomb of his friends called Lazarus, and even though he was going to resurrect Lazarus, as he did miraculously, prior to the resurrection of Lazarus, the Bible has records the shortest verse in the whole of the New Testament, in fact, the whole of the Bible, and it's just very simply, Jesus wept. Jesus feels our pain. And if you're mourning just now, you need to know that he feels your pain and he will bring you comfort. It says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. You will face challenges. The Bible says many are the challenges of the righteous. It's not like when you become a Christian, everything becomes easy. No, I don't think so. It says many are the challenges of a righteous man, but the Lord delivers them from them all. And you're facing the challenge, you need to know that God is the God of comfort, and may he be the God of comfort to you. Now, that said, this verse, while it includes comforting people in the mourning over the loss of someone, it includes that completely. It's not the main agenda of this verse. This verse is talking about predominantly about another type of mourning, although it does include the mourning, the loss of a human being. It's speaking specifically about spiritual mourning. Remember last week we looked at the verse before this. The verse before this said, blessed are the poor in spirit. It didn't say blessed are the poor financially. It's not talking about financial poverty, blessed are they. It's saying blessed are the spiritually poor, those who know their spiritual need of God. And we looked at that last week. So when he's talking about poverty, he's talking about spiritual poverty. Now he's talking about mourning. He's not predominantly, although it includes it, he's not predominantly talking about the loss of another human being. He's predominantly talking about our mourning over our spiritual condition, sin. Mourning over sin in our lives. Mourning over death is one thing, but mourning over sin is an even broader issue. Because the fact is that death wouldn't even exist were it not for sin. Right back at the beginning of time, God created a beautiful world in which human beings would live where there is no sin. At that point, there was no such thing as death. It was alien to our race, as was sin alien to our race. But when sin came into the world, so also came death. It's one thing to mourn the death of an individual. But here Jesus is talking about a broader issue a greater issue, a more root cause issue, and it's mourning the sin that's in the world and that fundamentally is in our lives as well. And the biggest issue of sin is it creates a barrier between us and God. So we're mourning sin, and that's what this is about. Blessed are those who mourn sin, for they shall be comforted. Now let me say to you, this this whole statement, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, this is a crazy statement in this pleasure-loving world. (laughs) I mean, this is a totally countercultural, out there, nutty statement in a world that's so devoted itself to the pursuit of pleasure. You know, the idea of mourning being blessed, that's nuts. You know, the world's version of this would be, blessed are those who pursue the pleasures of sin, for they don't need comfort. That's how the world would put it. And what we've done in our world is we've pursued comfort in sin. 
rather than mourning over sin. We've mourned about the wrong things and we've been comforted by the wrong things. But here Jesus says, in a totally countercultural way, blessed are those who mourn. I mean, that just does not sit right. And yet, I hope for, through what I explain, you'll get it. Jesus challenges the world that's devoted itself to the pursuit of pleasure. And while the end result of our lives, God will bring us blessing and pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure can lead us down in all sorts of negative routes. Jesus, conversely, in, in Luke 6, 25, said this, Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. So it's like the flip statement. In Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. In Luke 6, 25, Jesus said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Okay, this lines up with statistics. There's I read an article, it was published, and it was, it was statistics from a survey that was carried out in October 2005 by the Journal of Preventative Medicine. They looked at a study of thousands of Western teenagers, and they were studying immoral sexual activity and their abusive drugs. And they found this in the study. Here's a quote from Denise Dion Halfers, who carried out the survey. She said, the findings of the study showed that depression came after substance or sexual activity, not the other way around. Up until that point, the thinking was that it was because of depression that teenagers were getting into the kind of illicit sex and kind of sex with many partners uh, to try and get them out of their depression, or they would turn to the drugs to try and get them out of their depression. But here the study clearly showed that it was the other way around, that the immorality and the kind of messing around with drugs got them into the depression. The study went on to say that of the 13,000 adolescents that were interviewed and surveyed, 25% of those 13,000 said that they abstained from sex outside of marriage and drug taking, illegal drug taking. Only 4% of those who abstained experienced any form of depression. Among the other 75% of the teens who had been taking drugs and experimenting with sex, this was the findings. It found that the girls who were active in drug taking and sex outside of marriage were two to three and a half times more likely to experience depression than those who abstained. And the boys who participated in binge drinking were four and a half times more likely to experience depression than boys who abstained. Boys who smoked weeds were three times more likely to be depressed than those who abstained. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So mourning for sin is actually phenomenal advice. Here's the thing. I believe God wants you blessed. He made us. He wired us the way we are. Not the negative part of the way we are, but he wired us fundamentally how we are as human beings. He knows how we operate best. We were created to live for God. We were created to live in relationship with God. Sin is alien to our, our being, and instead of pursuing our fulfillment in that, we should be pursuing our fulfillment in God. God wants you blessed. He's not saying this stuff so you feel down about yourself. He's saying this stuff so you'll get out of your misery and find blessedness and ultimate comfort. That's the agenda of what I'm going to talk about today. But it's going to get bad for it's good. So hang in there. Mourning and sin. Okay? Here's some people's reaction to mourning for sin. Some people deny sin and to avoid mourning. So they kind of deny this thing we call sin. They minimize it. They kind of reduce it to... It's not that bad, really. And they do this so that they won't feel bad about it. Listen to this quote by Michael Novak, 
who's an American Catholic philosopher and an author. And he was awarded the Templeton Prize. And in the Templeton Prize, he stood up and gave this speech. And here's a quote from the speech. There is no such thing as truth. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There is many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. Now, that might seem strangely familiar to you. And you didn't know it was Michael Novak who said it. But the fact is, you've heard that kind of stuff quoted by tons of people in your workplace, in your place where you're studying, hanging out with your mates in the streets. This is the philosophy of the world we're living in. You know, feels good, do it. In other words, you can't say that's bad and that's bad and this is good and this is good. Who are you to make that judgment? The issue is, do what feels good to you. As long as you're sincere about what you believe, as long as you just do stuff that doesn't harm anyone else. That's the mentality and philosophy of the world. And by doing that, they avoid mourning because they don't face the issue and they don't talk about this, the sin. They justify their actions. There was a guy one day and he went into a pub and he ordered a pint. Having got the pint, he just got it in his hand and straight away threw the pint of beer in the bartender's face. The bartender said, what on earth was that for? What are you playing at? And the man said, listen, I'm really sorry. I've got this issue. Every time I get a pint in my hand, I've got to throw it over someone's face. I'm so sorry. It's, it's a mental thing. I'm, I'm just so sorry. And the guy said, well, you're not going to be ever served again in this bar. You need to get some serious help, mate. Off with you. So anyway, the guy disappears off. Several months later, the same guy reappears in the same pub. And he said, hi, sir. Uh, can I have a pint of beer? He said, wait a minute. You're the guy who was here several months ago. I'm not serving you a pint. He said, well, listen. I took your advice, I went away and got some help. I saw a psychiatrist, talked me through all my issues, dealt with everything. It's no longer an issue for me. Honestly, I've, I'm cured. And the man said, you sure? He said, absolutely sure. Okay, so he pours my pint of beer, he gets the pint in his hand and instantly throws it in the bartender's face. The bartender said, you said you were cured, what are you playing at? He said, yeah, I'm cured. I no longer feel guilty about it at all. <laughs> you see, the world deals with its sin by just saying, oh, it's not sin. Right? Okay, you can deal with it that way. Well, it doesn't actually fundamentally deal with it. It still remains. But you can deal with the emotion of it or some way you can deal with the emotion of it, although deep within us, we know it's not true. Listen to this quote. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That's not evil, that's, that's good. That's not good. How can you say you're good, you're evil? That's not bitter, that's sweet. That's not dark. It's just your opinion. It's light. I'm so wise. God says you're not. Okay, some mourn because of, so they minimize sin and they avoid mourning. Here's, here's another carry. Some people mourn because of a religious legalistic mindset. So they, they almost like penance. They feel to kind of deal with their sin, they've got to feel really bad about it as if them feeling bad somehow appeases God. That God thinks, right, they've suffered enough now, I will relieve them of their sin. And we see this in greater and lesser degrees. You know, some of you who are monks, you know, you've whipped yourself and crawled on your knees up the Vatican steps and done all that stuff. I know, you know, Pete did this and a few other guys did this. 
Others of you, it's not so obvious. Others of you, it's just, you kind of feel you have, you, you're under this kind of weird thing going on that you've got to do things to outweigh your bad deeds. And, you're, and you don't, you're doing that. And you, and you're, or you're mourning and you're deeply grieving and you're sorrowful about stuff in the hope that the sorrowful itself, that kind of emotion, which is a proper emotion, but the sorrowfulness itself somehow atones for your problem. The sorrowfulness is your response, but it doesn't deal with the issue. And you're putting your hope in God forgiving you because you're sorrowful. Your sorrowfulness has no power to forgive your sin. You've become religious. Other people mourn hopelessly. They're kind of full of remorse and with regret. We see people like Judas. Judas Iscariot, he betrays Jesus. And then he goes on and mourns for what he's done. And he hangs himself. It doesn't bring about a change of life. It brings him to a place of death. Mourning does nothing unless it changes your life. And then some mourn hopelessly. And that's, that was the situation with Judas. None of the above will bring you any hope or comfort. What will? Well, Jesus says it's blessed mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a type of mourning that is good. Let me, let's look at it in the life of Jesus first. Jesus mourned over Jerusalem and its sin. It says in Luke 19, 41, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over the city. Jesus felt deep compassion for a city. We should feel deep compassion for our city. Now, this is the end of, this is kind of Jesus' last visit to Jerusalem. It was within this week that Jesus was crucified just after this. He was weeping for the city that was about to crucify him. He was weeping because of their spiritual condition. He was deeply upset because of where they were at in relation to God, even though they thought they were doing well in relation to God. So he was deeply weeping for them. But now, you know, in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 23, we see the same time when Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem. You see, what we do, or what religious people tend to do, is we tend to criticize our city. We tend to criticize the sinners in our city. We tend to point the finger and say, they're naff and they're rubbish and how could you do that and you're a sinner. And, and we point the finger and we become religious. But let me say to you, before you go do that, you need to weep over your city. In Matthew 23, we see Jesus saying, woe to the Pharisees and woe to the scribes and woe to you who do this and woe to you. And he's, he's reprimanding the city. But at the end of Matthew 23, he laments over that city. You see, before you start going, whoa, 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 do you feel compassion for the city or are you just trying to be a religious bigot who, who makes yourself look good by putting everyone else down? Jesus was deeply upset for a city and he criticized their sin, but he wasn't also, he was not unwilling to weep over their sin. Jesus was moved with compassion. It wasn't some agenda to look holier than now. He was moved with compassion. Two weeks ago, I was driving to work and in the car, I just felt a huge compassion for my uncle. My uncle, he's in his 70s. He's an atheist. He's a passionate atheist. And he's, he's got into dialogue. I remember he used to debate with my mum a lot about faith and God. And mum would argue a case for God and my uncle John wouldn't. And he would argue against. And I remember just driving to work two weeks ago feeling an overwhelming compassion for my uncle John. So I prayed for him. I was praying for him. I was deeply mourning and grieving for him on the way to work. Anyway, 
two days ago, three days ago, dad phoned me and said, Peter, I just heard that Uncle John's been diagnosed with a terminal disease. The doctors are giving him not much time. I thought, man, God got me mourning from Uncle John. Do you know, I, I don't think it's just me upset for Uncle John. I think God's upset for Uncle John. I think God grieves over that man. God longs for that man. Not to make him feel bad, because he loves him. We've got to learn to mourn for others. And Jesus did this. The Apostle Paul did this. Isaiah did this. Nehemiah did this. Daniel did this. Paul also mourned over his sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Romans 7 is just Paul mourning over his own issues. He says in Romans 7, 18 to 19, and then 24 to 25, I know that nothing good lives in me. Bear in mind, this is the great Apostle Paul. Right? This is the guy who planted churches all over the known world. This is the guy who saw great miracles. This is the guy who, you know, if he was a guest speaker in your church, wow, you would queue for a week to get in because you wouldn't want to miss this guy. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I uh, do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Anyone relate to that? Right? You do the stuff you don't want to do. You think, I don't want to do that, but you end up doing that. Who, who's done that? What did you do? <laughs> oh, come on. No one, no one else put their hands up behind you. What, what? Come on, man. You just led us in worship, mate. Can you believe you've been led in worship by a man? That's <laughs> crazy. Anyway. Right, we can relate to that. We can, really, we can say, man, we've got issues in our life. We hate sinning, and yet we sin. Paul's saying, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? A strong language. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. We'll get to the good bit in a minute, guys. Hang in. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Paul mourned over his sin. We should mourn over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right, there are nine Greek words for the mourn or grieve. There's nine of them. Jesus could have chosen any one of those nine. And I guess there are so many different words used for that type of sentiment, emotion. Probably because it's such a multifaceted type of feeling you can have. Mourning's a deep issue. And therefore the Greek language uses nine words to describe it. But Jesus uses one of the nine words, and it's the strongest of all the words that he could have used to describe mourning. It's the Greek words, pentheo, which means to grieve or to wail. Richard Trench, the, new, uh, the Greek expert, said this, it's to grieve with the grief which so takes possession of your whole being that it cannot be hid. When the Old Testament is translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, it used the same word here to describe how Jacob wailed and mourns when he got the news that his son Joseph had died, although he hadn't. He mourned over his son Joseph. Barclay accurately translates this verse, blessed is the man who mourns like one mourning for the dead. So I'm saying, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I'm saying that that primarily doesn't relate to someone mourning for a lost loved one. But the word mourn is used in the same way as if you were mourning for a loved one. In other words, with the same 
strength that you would mourn and grieve over the death of a very close relative. With that same strength and vigor, we should be appalled at our own sin. We should be so gutted that we've got issues. I have to say, I at times wail over my sin. I think you think I say this sort of thing sometimes for effect. Uh, He's just saying this so he can feel like we can relate to him somehow. Pastor doesn't sin, you think. But I have to say, several times this year, several times I have wailed over my sin with tears on my knees in my house. I hate sin. It's appalling. I hate it. Now, I'm a liberated man. I know God's forgiveness. I don't walk under condemnation. I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven, but I wail over my sin. You've got to hate it. Why mourn over sin? Here's two big reasons. Number one, because it's against God. Before you worry about consequence of sin, before you worry about how it makes you feel and all the guilt and that naff feeling you have, right? So, so often we get upset about sin because of how naff we feel after it. It's a bigger issue at stake here. It's against God. Our sin is against God. James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, it's not saying that you shouldn't be friendly with people, right? Can't like you anymore or I'm an enemy of God. It's not about that. It's not saying you can't like little bunny rabbits and flowers and trees. It's not talking about that type of world definition. It's talking about the sinful things in the world. As John's epistle says, you know, the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. It's talking about that kind of worldly mentality and spirit. It's talking about this this world's total commitment to sinning. It says, you've got to hate that. It says, if if you're a friend of that kind of sinful mentality, you're hating God. You have to understand it. Your sin is completely against God. It's totally against him. It's a display of hatred towards him. That's why I hate it. It's, don't be on the fence with this thing. Our culture has made you on your fence in this thing because you're still thinking, Peter, you're making it a bit heavy. Now, the only reason you're thinking that is because your culture's told you to think that. Your culture's told you it's not that bad, each to their own, as long as you don't harm others. That's what your culture's told you. It's not what God has told you. And it's not what your conscience tells you. And it's not what eternity will witness to. The truth is, sin is horrendous. And we must mourn over it because it's against God. Jeremy Taylor said, no sin is small. It is a sin against an infinite God and may have consequences immeasurable. No grain of sands is small in the mechanism of a watch. Another reason we should mourn over sin is because of God's judgment. We believe God is love, and I'll come to that in a moment, but you have to know that he's, he's judge. God is a, a God of wrath. He judges severely. You read your Bible? It's not the memory verses we memorize typically, but they're in there. God judged the world with the floods, wiping out all mankind in Noah's day. God poured out literally fire and brimstone in broad daylight on two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, in Abraham's day. We see God in, as Moses was leading the Israelites through the the wilderness, 
opening up the grounds, and the ground literally swallowed alive people who were totally in rebellion and sin. We see God demonstrating his glory and pouring out judgments and plagues on Egypt because of their pride, hard-heartedness, and sin. God is a judge. I mean, to just to focus on the other and ignore that, to just focus on his love and ignore that he's a judge, you're, you're imbalanced. He's totally a judge. You can't read the Bible without knowing he's a judge. He is a judge. He needs to be feared and revered and held in the highest respect. We see God's judgments throughout the Old Testament. But you say, up here, that's the mean, nasty God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, now he's nice. He's called Jesus. We heard about him in Sunday school. He's a hippie. He's got blonde hair, wears sandals. You know, he, he talks about peace and love and joy. He was born in a little stable and there's cattle and I did a halo. That's Jesus. He's the nice God of the New Testament, not the mean, nasty God of the Old Testament. Well, not so. He's one and the same. Jesus, this great God, said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but who are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to kill both the soul and body in hell. Jesus was very overt in his warning about God's judgment. This is the God of the New Testament who when Ananias and Sapphira at the offering time had a wonky attitude in giving their offering, they dropped dead. Now you imagine you're in that service. The offering basket was handed around. The guy before you just dropped dead. He put 10p in, he dropped dead. You think. (laughs) You're putting the whole thing in. My car keys, my wife. (laughs) All right, or same God who in, it's not funny guys. This is the good bit comes later. The same God who in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that during communion time, because people were, were totally, they were, I mean, they were getting drunk during communion time. Now, you know it's a, that's one major indicator you have an alcohol issue. If you're drunk during communion, that's a big indicator you have alcohol issues. They were drunk during communion and they were dying. Now, again, you imagine you're in that communion service. The wine passes round, the grape, like three guys are dead and you're lying. You think, no, I'm not going to have it today, thanks. You'd... That's what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 11. God is God. So I mourn sin because it's against God. I mourn sin because I'll be judged for sin, potentially. Now, many people have reacted negatively against the human race because of sin. One of those men would be Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud had a very negative take on humanity. He's the famous Viennese physician, one of the most influential thinkers of a previous generation. This is what Sigmund Freud said in 1918 about human beings with whom he had not much compassion. He said this, I've found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash. That's what Sigmund Freud said about human beings. He died aged 83, friendless, isolated, alone. It was well known that in his last years, because of his detesting of the human race, he pushed away even his closest followers. That's one person's reaction to a sinful human race. But that's not God's reaction to a sinful human race. God's reaction was entirely different. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, the word world is the word cosmos in Greek. It means the world and the universe. It means 
The world populated with human beings who are in rebellion against God. God so loved the messy, dark, ugly, rebellious world that, of God-haters. God loved that kind of world, not the nice world of bunny rabbits and hills. But God loved the world of sinful men hating God. God loved that world so much that he gave his one and only son. Jesus Christ entered into human history. And God loved the world so much that his son was willing to pay the ultimate price on behalf of a world that was hating God. And as Jesus died on the cross, the promise is this, that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, be judged, be under the wrath of God, forever forbidden for hell, to hell, will not perish. You'll be forgiven. You'll have eternal life. God's reaction to the sinful world, although he is a judge, is that he was not willing to judge because of his love. But judgment is there. But what happened is Jesus took our judgment for us so that God's justice would be satisfied and also so that his love would be satisfied. Sin is a very serious thing. And just because we're forgiven, we should not make the mistake in thinking sin is not serious. You have to understand your forgiveness came at a massive cost to Jesus Christ. If you're not saved today, if you don't know what it is to be forgiven, if you're not sure that when you die, you're going to be with him for all eternity, then you need to know that a huge price has been paid on a cross 2,000 years ago. And that one who died for you on the cross rose again. He's alive. He's in this room by his spirit. And he loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And he wants to give you an eternal life. Run to him. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Mourning that leads to comfort. So that's the mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. It contradicts the world's view of sin completely. We're told to mourn over it. But it goes on to say, for they will be comforted. Listen to this, Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5. Blessed is he whose transgression are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who sin the Lord does not count against him, but in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavily upon me. My strength was sapped as in the summer heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my sin and my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Here David is describing a journey he's on and it's the journey that the Beatitudes are on. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm nothing. I'm wasted. I'm far from God. I need God. Help! Blessed are those who mourn. I'm a sinner. I've recognized my need of God. Now I recognize I'm a sinner. Forgive me, for they shall be comforted. Forgiven. Blessed is the man whose transgression are forgiven, whose sins are covered. The Lord does not account them against him. That's huge. And that's what happens. That's the comfort bit. That's what it's talking about. It's not like they're there, sinner. It's not that. It's I've removed the sin, sinner, righteous person. You're forgiven eternally. That's the comfort. Second Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10. I am happy not because you were made sorry. This is Paul writing to the church of Corinth. I'm happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We see worldly sorrow, people upset because of failed dreams or people upset 
or thinking their mourning's going to somehow achieve them some penance issue, or grieving over the wrong things, that will bring death. But the Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And what does that lead to? Forgiveness in life. Comfort. It's this journey. Blessed are those who mourn. But it starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. You recognize your need of God. Blessed are those who mourn. You turn to God and ask forgiveness for your sin, that they shall be comforted. The next one is blessed are the meek. You can't help but be meek knowing the journey you've been on. (laughs) And we'll come to that next week. But you'll be comforted. Mourning precedes conversion. There are thousands of people in our world who will say, yeah, I'm a sinner. But knowing you're a sinner and even being sad about your sin doesn't do anything unless it leads to repentance. Godly sorrow is great because it leads to repentance. It leads you to God. It gets you asking forgiveness from God. It gets you to put your faith in God. Unless that happens, you're just going to be a sorrowful person. And that's naff. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And that's the journey of conversion. If you haven't mourned over your sin, if you just come to Jesus because he's the next cool thing in your life, I don't know if you're really saved. Honestly. Because you've got to go on this journey. You've got to know you offend God by your sin and you need to repent for your sin. The big deal was that he died on the cross for your sin. So just want a cool thing like Jesus in your life and not recognizing the magnitude of what he did for you doesn't really tell me you're saved. Mourn conversion, forgiveness, and acceptance. And then it brings ultimate comfort. It says, blessed are they who mourn, for only they shall be comforted. I've written the word only in there because that's what's in the original Greek language. It it makes it exclusively them. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for only they will be comforted. Coming back to our society, remember the first point I said, our world, this is a completely contrary idea. You see, our world thinks that, you know, blessed are those who don't mourn, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. But the fact is, the world that we're living in that wants to just pursue pleasures and cover up sin and not, and kind of explain it away or say it's nothing really, that this world we're living in, it can never really enjoy comfort that the Bible's talking about here. This world can't enjoy this kind of comfort because it says, blessed are those who mourn, for only they shall be comforted. You can only be comforted if you first mourned about the sin, right? Imagine you've got a sickness, right? You've got some horrible disease, and imagine you go throughout your whole life ignoring it, saying, no, it's not there. It's not really there. But then you die of it, right? You've kind of gone through life, deluded yourself that you haven't got a problem, but at the end, you die from the problem. Or man, I've got an issue in my life. So you go to the doctors, you get medication. Your problem gets dealt with, and what do you experience? You now experience relief. Fantastic. Now, we also believe you can get prayed for in the church, and you get your sickness removed, and either way, you get relief. But it comes by first acknowledging, I've got a problem. And then having recognized you've got a problem, you get the answer. And then only when you get the answer do you experience the relief. You'd never experience the relief unless you first acknowledge you had a problem. And a world which refuses to acknowledge sin, therefore won't mourn about it, can never experience the comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for only they shall be comforted. The word comforted in the Greek language is parakaleo, which means to call near, to console, to encourage, 
to strengthen by uh, consolation, to call to one side. God comes alongside and gives us comfort. It's God comforting you. That's what it is. By his very presence. James 4, 8 to 10 says this, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. The comfort is that God lifts you up having you first humbled yourself. God, forgive me for my sin. God forgives you. He lifts you up. You've drawn near to him. He's now drawn near to you. He's now close to you. And he's close to you and you're feeling that comfort. Comfort is knowing God has forgiven you. God is now drawn near to you. You are cleansed. God is with you in life. That's comfort. Nothing else is like that in terms of comfort. Knowing that God is with you and for you and cleansed you, that's comfort. This is this beautiful story. This is in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter seven. Jesus was invited for a meal and this whole episode unfolds. It says, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, the inference here is the lady was a prostitute. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, hmm, if this man was a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, Simon, this is the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus went on to say, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet. And she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil in my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. If I tell you her sins, her many sins, have been forgiven. That's comfort. For she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the women, your faith has saved you, go in peace. I love this. I love this. I mean, so many beautiful details in this. Right? Jesus doesn't once mention sin to this lady. Not once. Typically, you don't need to mention sin to sinners. Right? We know we're sinners. Although, if it's not known, you might want to mention it. But she knew it. And she repented. I mean, I also wonder, why was she in the house? That's another question. But anyway. And the other issue here was this. Simon assumed that the person whose debt was big debt had been cancelled was the woman's. But it might have been Simon's. Because I've discovered this in life. That some people have obvious issues. Alcoholic, drug addicts, prostitutes. Right? You see their issues. They blow it. Everyone sees it. 
But the guy who's a porn addict, you don't see that issue. He doesn't smell of anything on Sundays. It's not like his eyes are kind of all over the place. He's got a nervous twitch. It doesn't happen. The porn addict just gets away with it. looks like everything's fine, just, just pretends. Or the person who's got a gambling addiction can cover it up real well. Or the person, how about this one? The person who's full of pride. I could argue a case quite strongly from the Bible that pride is worse than any of the other sins I've just mentioned. And yet you don't even detect, it goes under the radar. So here we are judging in the surface, but actually God judges under the scenes. And sometimes we feel sin more because it's obvious to others. But if we only saw things from God's perspective, you see, I'm not a drug addict, but I wail over my sin. Because I see things, I start to see glimpses of things from God's perspective, and I think, that's ugly. So we need to repent for our sin. And you know what the result is? Comfort. And you know what the other result is? I love you, God. This lady was forgiven much. If you only knew the scale to which you have been forgiven, if you only knew the scale, right? Now you in your head might think, yeah, I'm forgiven. But if you really knew how much you were forgiven, you'd have an overwhelming, colossal sense of love for God's huge gratitudes. Nothing would be too much for you to do for him because he's amazing. He's wiped your sins clean at a huge price. Wow. That should result in grateful living. So we have this comfort. And listen, here's the thing, right? I think life goes on this journey. We're continually mourning and we're continually being comforted. It's not that the moment we came to Christ, we were mourning and then we got converted. Now, no more mourning and we're just happy. We're Christians, you see. It's not the case. You see, we're living in a constant tension between mourning and happiness and mourning and comfort. And this is the way the Christian life is. The, the Greek tense of the verb in this sentence is, blessed are those who mourn. It doesn't say, blessed are those who have mourns. It says, blessed are those who mourn. It's a current tense. It's currently in your life now, not just what you did at conversion to get you saved. It's what you did at conversion, but it's what you've done ever since. It's a part of your life. You mourn, you repent, you thank God. Then you blow it again, you mourn, you repent, and you thank God. Being around Christians can be an intense experience. They're joyful, but they're somber, and they're deep, and they're excited, and they're grateful but then they're repentant. <laughs> this is this constant, I, I feel this, I don't know about you. You probably don't repent, but I feel this. And then we've got two equal and opposite errors about Christianity. Some folks say, oh, Christians should just be somber. So Christians are dull, you know, and they're doer, never get excited, always down about things, always criticizing others. Churches, even the buildings kind of say, keep out. It's cold stone architecture, small apertures that says, keep out. The pews are designed in such a way to make you feel uncomfy. Great to be in church. It keeps you awake because the sermons are dull because the guy's doer. Everything's doer. It's dull. That's Christianity. Well, that's not how it should be. And equally, the other extreme says, Christians should always be happy. And if you're not happy, there's lack of faith. Well, that's true. No, it's not. (laughs) That's true. It's not true. Because we're on this journey. We mourn. I hate this sin. But then don't stay in that for long. I mean, just seriously, sometimes just seconds. And with depth of repentance, say, God, forgive me. And in that seconds, forgive. 
In fact, the great news is, eternally speaking, you've already been all forgiven anyway. But we must mourn, come to him and be comforted. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 10, sorrowful, you're always rejoicing. That's the balance. You've got this tension going on. You're aware you're a sinner, but you're aware you're loved. You're living with a deep fear of God in this hand, but on the other hand, you're living with a massive, huge sense of knowing God's acceptance in the other hand. And they're like this. And you think, whoa. And that keeps you strong. Keeps you balanced. You know, I, I think there's nothing better than a good dose of Christianity for a good ego. I'm serious. This, you know, kind of the idea of self-esteem. The world's way of getting good self-esteem is just pretend everything's fine if it's not fine. You're cool. You're going to be good. You're a champion. You're a hero. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, you're a champion, even if you rubbish everything. Just, you're a champion. Right? Ignore realities. Just say you're a champion. Kind of, that's not realistic. God's version of good self-esteem is, here's the big dose of reality. You're a sinner. But here's another big dose of reality. I've done something huge for your sin. And here's another big dose of reality. I love you, sinner. And here's another big dose of reality. Even though you're a sinner, there are other good qualities in your life because you're a creation of mine. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So you're living with this huge dose of reality. I'm a sinner. I'm accepted. I fear God. He's my father. And you're, you're living like this. That's what, this is what it means. And it's in this life, but the comfort is not only in this life. It's also in the life to come. It's ultimate comfort. Luke 16, 25, speaking about Lazarus having died as a believer, it says, now he is comforted. You believe God in this life. You live for God in this life. You'll experience a ton of comfort and blessing in this life. But when you die, you'll experience eternal comfort. But now he is comforted. Eternal comfort. Sir David Bruce, the inventor of the kaleidoscope, this is, he was a believer. This is what he said when he died. He said, I will see Jesus and I shall see him as he is. I, I've had the light for many years. Oh, how bright it is. I feel so safe and satisfied. His dying words. Comfort. He's moving into eternal comfort. Abbott said this as he was dying. Glory to God, I see heaven sweetly open before me. Elizabeth B. Browning, the English poetess who said, we want to see the touch of Christ's hand upon our literature. At death door, this is what she said. It's beautiful. It wasn't hell. It wasn't eternal separation from God. As a believer, your last breath in this life <laughs> is the first breath in the presence of your God. All at his expense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger will last only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping remains for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Isaiah 61, verse 3. Provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The same Paul who said, what a wretched man I am, is the same Paul who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's a victorious kind of balance, kind of reality check, kind of awareness of God 
at what he's done for your life. Lord God, we honor you today. We want to thank you so much, Jesus, that contrary to everything that anyone had ever been taught up to that point, you said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In a world that gave itself and is still giving itself to pleasure, to the pursuit of self-satisfaction, to that world you said, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. God, I want to thank you so much that you have spoken wisdom to our lives and we honor you and admire you, Jesus. Lord, I pray as a church that we be a church that gets the balance right, that God, we'd live with this tension of living in an awareness of human frailty and weakness, but at the same time having an even greater awareness of God's forgiveness and God's acceptance. That on one hand, we live in a deep fear and respect of God. On the other hand, we would live with the knowledge that you are our Father, and in your hands we're eternally secure. God, I pray we would not ever make excuses for our sin, but I pray, God, we would deeply mourn and wail for our sin. But God, with the same, if not greater intensity, we would know the massiveness of the joy of God, the massiveness of the relief of God's forgiveness, that we would be totally relieved knowing that God accepts and forgives eternally speaking. In Jesus' name. God, for those uh, who are just, they almost hate themselves because of their sin. I pray, God, that that they wouldn't get into some downward spiral of self-pity. But please, God, let their sorrow, let their mourning result in repentance that brings them to you into life. God, let them, I pray today, let not, let not another day, another hour or minute go by without them experiencing the colossalness of the forgiveness of God. Jesus, I know you died so we could be forgiven. You died so we could be restored. You died so we could have a new start. I pray let people experience that today. Let believers experience that today. Let them not walk, ever walk under a cloud of guilt and condemnation. Let the morning last for a night, but let the joy come in the morning. Let the, the joy and the acceptance and the knowledge of God has forgiven me. Just hit them today, God. Let them know that ultimate comfort, God, that eternal comfort and that sense of security that comes from you. In Jesus' name. Okay, take a moment just to respond to God. Just take a moment and pray back your response to God, just where you are. For those of you who are making excuses for your sin, it's time for you to mourn and repent and receive God's true forgiveness. You will have no comfort while you're making excuses for your sin. There might be some of you here today and you know that you have never come to God in your life. Or you may have come to God in the past, but you, for whatever reason, you've walked away from God. And you know in your heart, I'm not yet in relationship with God. Then I want to give you an opportunity just now 
to put things right between you and God. I want to give you the opportunity now to make a commitment to him, to ask him for his forgiveness and to experience the revolution that takes place when God comes into your life and forgives you. She's saying, Peter, I need to know this forgiveness. I need to know that eternally speaking, my life is safe. And most of all, I need to know that I'm loved and forgiven by God. I want to know this God who's done this for me. If that's you today, and you're willing to put your faith in Jesus and turn from your sin, then I'm going to give you an opportunity right now just to make that commitment. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I invite you to just repeat this prayer after me. Let this be your own commitment to him. Just use my words, one line at a time, quietly after me, under your breath, just repeat this. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for sending Jesus into this world. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to die on the cross for me. I realized that I was the guilty one and yet you died and took my guilt for me. You took the punishment that I deserve for my sins as you died on that cross. Thank you on the third day you rose again. Thank you you're alive right now. I believe in you. And today I put my faith in you as a savior. I trust in you to forgive me. And I ask you for that forgiveness. And Jesus, I declare you to be from now on the Lord of my life. Be number one from now on. Help me to follow you to the best of my ability for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer and you made that commitment just there, if you made that response to God just there and you ask God to come into your life and forgive you whether it be this is you rededicating yourself to God or whether this be the first time you've ever done that I'd love the privilege of praying for you in order to know who I'm praying for can I ask you to do a very simple thing while everyone else is praying can you just identify yourself to me and just say Peter I prayed that prayer just by raising your hands quickly and then putting it down again so anyone like that today you prayed that prayer you made that commitment just put your hand up nice and clearly so I can see it Thanks. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else before I pray? Dear God, thank you so much for this precious individual today. We made a commitment to you, prayed a prayer, and I know you've heard, you've forgiven. And it's just for them you died because you love them. I pray they would know the joy of your acceptance and forgiveness today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Dear friend who responded there, one of the prayer team will connect with you briefly at the end before you leave. Don't, don't rush off.